Have you ever wondered what George Washington was like before he was the guy in the dollar bill? He was tall and strapping, but also stubborn, impatient, thin-skinned, and, believe it or not, annoying. We'll meet that young man destined for greatness next. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to meet a giant of American history while he's still in short pants. Not so long after we imagine him, chopping down a cherry tree. Well, maybe he's not that young. And of course, that I cannot tell a lie moment is apocryphal. But what's 100% true is that George Washington wasn't always the man carved into Mount Rushmore. He had to grow into the shoes that laid down the first footsteps of the American presidency. Here to introduce us to the indispensable man as he prepared to meet destiny's call is Peter Stark, author of Young Washington, How Wilderness and War Forged America's Founding Father. Peter Stark is an adventure writer and historian. He studied English and anthropology at Dartmouth, later taking a master's in journalism from the University of Wisconsin. Today, he's a correspondent for Outside Magazine, and you've seen his work in places like Smithsonian, The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, and Men's Journal. His previous book, Astoria, was a finalist for the Penn USA Literary Award. You can find him at peterstarkauthor.com, at Stark Adventurer on Twitter, and Peter Stark Adventure Historian on Instagram. And you can find him right here in New York City on July 31st, 2019 in Bryant Park. The time is 7 p.m. and Peter will be participating in the New York Historical Society's Nonfiction at the Bryant Park Reading Room Summer Series. That's at 6th Avenue and 42nd Street, a short walk from Grand Central Station, the Port Authority Bus Terminal, or Penn Station and it's the nexus of several subway lines. So it's easy to get there from Long Island, Westchester County, or New Jersey. And if you are coming from New Jersey, well, I guess you can always drive across the George Washington Bridge. Okay, now that we've saddled up our horse for an adventure back in the 13 colonies, let's join Peter Stark and meet young Washington. I'm joined on the line by Peter Stark, author of Young Washington, How Wilderness and War Forged America's Founding Father. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Well, thanks so much, Dean. I think this will be really fun to talk about. 
Well, in a way, I wish your book, Young Washington, was a little less fun because it's just so exciting. I'm going to have to remind myself to step back here that I'm doing an interview. I'm not just cornering you uh, at a a historic conference and saying, hey, your book was so great. And isn't Washington cool? And oh, when he did this, it was so much fun. I really feel like that as if I'm bouncing up and down, you know, a, a puppy when you get home and you've been away for a long trip and they're just so happy to see you. That's the kind of thrill I got from reading this book. I was taking little, oops, where I was taking little moments from it and sharing it with people. And in fact, I just hit the mic because I'm gesticulating so much. I was telling people this is an exciting book and that's something that you probably don't associate with the George Washington that you see in the pictures. He's very posed. He's on the dollar bill. He's very regal, the powdered wig. It's something to meet him when he's young. He has no idea what he's going to be, but he hopes to be. And he's not just a mini version of the Washington that we know from Valley Forge and the iconic images of him. He's really a guy that isn't anywhere near what he's going to be. He doesn't have any of the skills. You list a, a bunch of the a bunch of the flaws he has, and he doesn't sound like someone you'd like to hang out with. <laughs> so I want I wanted to start off with that. Say you're meeting this 21 year old George Washington that you introduce us to in the first lines of Young Washington. How would you describe him to me? I'm going to meet this young man. I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to probably have to work with him. Maybe we're in the army together. How would you describe him to me if I knew nothing about his personality? Well, first, I think you could start with his his physicality because he is quite a large guy for his, his era. He's at least six feet. So he had a fairly imposing physical presence. But he was also awkward. He was socially awkward. He didn't have great comfort speaking. He really had more comfort moving. He was quite an athlete, both as a young man and as he grew older. But he also had a really difficult personality from everything one can tell from doing a lot of research about him at that early age, and that he was extremely ambitious. That's one of the most notable things about him, really trying to make his way upward in society. He was vain. He was highly conscious of his image, of any slight. He was very thin-skinned. He was, in a way, what we'd say today, emotionally needy, Hmm. that he seemed to need a lot of emotional reinforcement that he didn't much get to tell him that, you know, it's okay that he is okay where he is in life. And so there's this sense of this guy who's very aware of the world around him and learning from the world around him. So I think he'd be extremely alert. But on the other hand, I think he would be awkward, and I think he would be not an easy guy to simply to hang out with. And he would be a guy that would take offense hmm quite easily at things that didn't seem to put him in a favorable light. Doesn't seem at all, as I said, the guy you think you're going to meet. And I guess we see this in movies a lot to deal with time travel. You think you're going to go back and meet somebody and they're going to be great. And they're shocker, just like any of us, right? Well, hey, you think you'd love to hang out with Washington when he was a young guy. (laughs) Then I start reading your book and I say, what a pain he was sometimes and things like that. (laughs) That is right. (laughs) I know. It's it's really a totally a different dimension of George Washington that I think so few Americans, including me, knew know anything about until I started researching it. And it's just what I find remarkable is 
not only that he was a great leader in the end, but that he was a great leader given where he started and how far he went, you know, from where he began. It's one of those books I throw up my hands trying to tease it (laughs) and just say, here, you got to read it because there's just so many great things in it. You did a great job and wow moments. There's a lot of those. You just say, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's you just have to do the research and those wow moments start jumping yeah, out no at, kidding. It, at you after a while. I get shot six or seven times. So <laughs> if you're shot at or shot through his hat and his coat, he's a guy that needs to become that hero. As I sat reading Young Washington, I thought of a line from the first Avengers film where Tony Stark, Iron Man, he describes Captain America as a living legend who kind of lives up to the legend. And that's a rewarding bit of writing because... As viewers, we know that he started out as a skinny nothing, which wasn't one of Washington's problems, but we think of him as the general, the president. He's a guy who is immediately demanding reverence, who carries himself so well. He is a real-life hero here to every generation of Americans from before there was a United States. I like to call a book like this an origin story. This is where you do meet him when he's without his powers, let's say. He doesn't have all of those abilities. He doesn't have the discipline over himself. He has limitations. He has doubts. He's racked with doubts, which is something that today we really look for in historical figures. For a long time, they didn't want to talk about that at Mount Vernon. I was there once, and they said, we're looking to bring the more human Washington that people want. How did you get inspired to track down that deeply flawed, insecure young man who grows up into this regal, unsmiling face on the $1 bill. Well, as you put it, before he had his superpowers, before he had his powers, mm-hmm. I love that that line. So I came at it from a kind of an odd angle that I'm not a presidential historian or biographer. I'm adventure and wilderness writer. And I'm an adventurer and a guy who's spent a lot of time in the wilderness over over his lifetime. And so some years ago, I was writing a book, or re, I should say researching a book, uh, about what I called my blank spot book, that I was looking for the emptiest places on the American map. Mm-hmm. And I talked to a geographer, a satellite geographer, who said, oh, we'll get a, you know, like a NASA nighttime photo of the U.S. at night and, you know, look where the lights are, and then you want to go where they're not. And one of the places I went, curiously enough, was western Pennsylvania, because it's surprising how few lights there are there, how unpopulated the mountains and forests of western Pennsylvania are. So that was one of my blank spots that I was researching for this book. And as I was, you know, making my travels through western Pennsylvania, through the woods and the wilderness, I kept stumbling across this guy, this young George Washington. Here was this guy who was, you know, these like, you know, vain and thin skinned and petulant and awkward and stubborn and, you know, all these things. And it was so unlike the George Washington that I knew, you know, growing up. And I don't I didn't know anything more about George Washington than any other average American. He was also a guy that had an historical role, even in those early days, in his early 20s, the period I'm talking about. And that he, you know, to put it bluntly, he inadvertently set off or helped to set off the French and Indian War. So here's this guy, this whole other George Washington. And that really intrigued me. 
Um, and likewise, I've always been fascinated with as a writer and, and have written about quite a lot individuals who are in extreme situations in the wilderness. And so in young George Washington, here was another example of that, of a young guy who's in a pretty extreme situation in the wilderness, actually over and over, and barely escapes with his life any number of times. That's perfect for you, for your skill set, as they say, that here's somebody who is out there, and you bring that to life for us, because we're used to there being roads, even if we're, we know, okay, they didn't have that back then, they didn't even have zippers, they didn't have Kevlar, they didn't have cell phones they had nothing to have somebody who really digs into that rather than just say it you really showed us and that was because you walk the actual ground which is something i'm big on you went there where it still feels like it could be then and i imagine you're thinking in your head well what would washington do with the tools he had at hand at the time exactly and and that's really what i feel i bring to this as a writer as you say it's it is my skill set and and i feel really fortunate to come across this young George Washington story that fits my skill set so well, or my skill set fits it so well. And that that's what I really tried to do is bring alive that vivid component of what it is to be in those wilderness situations. And so I'm not uncovering, you know, never before seen documents in some deep, dusty archive in London or Paris. And, you know, there've been thousands of Washington biographers who've worked on that for, for decades. And I was not going to turn up a new document, but what I do bring to it that I think is, I like to think is new is to the Washington story is this experience in the wilderness. And that I know what it feels like actually very specifically, for instance, to paddle a canoe down a river full of ice flows that are about to upset you and turn you over at any moment, mm. or run through a woods in the starlight in the on a snowy, frozen winter night. I know what that feels like. I know what it looks like. And so I tried to bring as best I could while still being absolutely accurate to the historical facts, the historical record. I tried to bring alive as best I could what that would have felt like for young George Washington. And I like that that's the subhead of young Washington is how wilderness and war forged America's founding father. We all think of the war. We think those are his big moments. But also when you're out there and you know this far better than I do, you have to have that self-discipline. You can't let your mind wander. You can't indulge in the silly little things because it could literally cost you your life. And with him as a commander, it could cost the men under his command. It could cost him his own command to say nothing of his own life. That struck me as something I wished I had read as a young man because we do all need to learn that. We all need to learn to discipline ourselves, to control our passions. And boy, this George Washington in your book has so many of those. He doesn't have a firm grip on his emotional reins that he has later in life. He does have the self-doubt. He has the anger. He's writing a love letter to a married woman. How great does that sound? Does anybody think that that's what you would picture with George Washington, right? He, he seems like he barely told Martha he loved her. So those are all things you have to learn. And for me, I always got the idea we didn't know too much about Washington's youth, but you brought a lot of that together. Is it because maybe some of the biographers in the past 
did shy away from telling his early story because in those days they really tried to avoid talking about them. Washington burns his papers. He just wanted his adulthood to stand on its own. How was it that you went about digging into that part of his life that we sort of want to get to the exciting part? We don't like the origin story. How did you do that? What were the archives? Well, I, I mean, I think that's exactly right, that that there are a few reasons why this part of his life hasn't been written about it very much, certainly compared to the later parts of his life. And one is that, of course, that we want to maintain or have wanted to maintain um, this great icon of a, of a great leader over, over the last two and a half centuries, you know, the commander in chief and first president. And so that's, of course, where the, the research and writing is focused. And another reason, of course, is that when George died, Martha burned all their early correspondence. And so we, there's not a lot in the early record of a very personal nature, but there is quite a bit if you, when you start digging into it. And that he kept diaries when he went into these wilderness situations. Well, starting when he was a young man, actually starting at age 16, he went into really his first kind of frontier adventure trip and he uh he kept a diary then it was kind of a crude simple diary but he kept it then and then his next big one at age uh 21 uh he kept a much more extensive diary so we have those and and the letters that he wrote especially to his his commanding officers when he actually did get an officer's job actually on his first real wilderness mission he was sent by the british governor of virginia robert dinwiddie on a, on his first wilderness mission and at that point he did start Washington did start to save his correspondence because it was really of an official matter you know that that he in a way he was obligated to keep the official correspondence so i spent i don't know how much time i mean i read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of washington's letters from this era and letters to him and his diaries and newspaper accounts i mean it's you know you don't think of there being newspaper accounts in 1753, but there are, you know, the Virginia Gazette is one. And so there, there are actual newspaper accounts from then. And there's some wonderful online resources. The, as you, um, I'm sure many of your listeners know that the uh, University of Virginia has a huge project, the Washington Papers Project, to compile all of George's papers, George Washington's papers, those that he's written those you know letters written to him, which I think is going to be 70 or 80 volumes eventually. And the beauty of that is that it's all online in so far as all the volumes are compiled, which most of them are at this point. It's all online through the Library of Congress and there are the National Archives. And so, you know, we could call it up on our cell phones right now to get, you know, George's, mm-hmm. George Washington's letter of April 2nd, you know, 1752, we can get that easily. And so that was a huge resource for me. So that, so I dug around in that a lot. I went to these places. I used all sorts of resources. You had so many great quotes about the book too, which really struck me. And I always try to work those in if I can. One was by Carl Hoffman, author of Savage Harvest. And he says of young Washington, quote, forget the idea of a musty history tome. This is a gripping cinematic adventure tale that made me envious of not just young George Washington's exploits, but Peter Stark's ability to make them so real and immediate, which is a very nice quote. Any author would be proud to have that. I like the idea of a novel. This does read like a novel. He has an amazing life, does young Washington. And you write that he 
seemed a far more human and vulnerable and accessible character than the majestic remote father of our country, whose great deeds so many of us heard growing up. I like both of those things together because that's what we want in a novel and in a human story. How do you hope, readers, and I know you're hearing from them now, the book's in paperback, how do you hope and how are you finding that they view him now, now that they can say, if I met young George, I, I wouldn't be intimidated. I mean, I'm sure you would later in life. He could pull your arms off. But, you know, <laughs> if I met him at this phase, I would say, hey, I've, re- I've literally read your mail. I know that, you know, you didn't start off like that. You didn't start off copying down those rules of civility. You didn't start off able to take all these insults and slights from the Continental Congress. You started out flawed just like me. How are you finding readers inspired by that and absorbing that into their own lives? Well, I think they are. I think they really relate to it. And that's actually been one of the great pleasures in both researching and writing and then speaking quite a lot about this book around the country is that readers really seem to respond just as they're saying that that here is a, a more accessible, more human George Washington. And in that way, he's almost more inspiring that he just didn't kind of spring full-blown out of the ether as this great leader, you know, some kind of immaculately conceived, you know, born flawless, showing up among us fully formed as the guy who's going to lead the Continental Army and then the, the, the presidency. Rather, here's this guy who just struggles like every one of us does. I know I certainly did. And early 20s, prime time. And so I think people really connect with that. And I've been really pleased by the response. I, you know, I was kind of bracing myself to be assaulted by, I don't know, you know, critics and great Washington fans about, well, this is such a negative side of George Washington. But I, I don't think I've heard one word of that. Wow. And it's more people are really curious and they really want to know what this guy went through and how did he get through it and how did he learn? And, and the inspiration is that he did learn. It really is because you look at yourself in a new light and then you look at him in a new light reflected by him and you say, hey, I can relate to a man who gets mad. I can relate to unrequited love. I can't really relate to I telling my father I never can tell a lie when I'm a kid and I cut down a tree. I can't, you know, <laughs> and I understand the era that we wanted to inspire our kids and we wanted to have generations look up to him. We wanted to have him be uh, almost this godlike figure, and he earned the hero worship. He earned being heroic. He worked really hard at it, is the important part you get out of young Washington. But he's not starting out that way. And I liked it in your book, you don't start him out that way. In fact, after the infamous Braddock disaster, it's Lord Halifax who only writes then that Washington acted as bravely as if he really loved the whistling of bullets. And I said, aha, now we're getting a little of a hint. You build up towards that. Sort of like Winston Churchill, he writes his mother from Cuba when he's first under fire that there's nothing so exhilarating as being shot at without result, which I'm sure is a letter any mother would love to get from her son, right? He's in a war zone. <laughs> but, I want to do it more. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek out more danger. But I said, you know, that's a long time before we get to that point, isn't it? And that Braddock defeat, it's not something that he just shrugs off. Fort necessity is not something he shrugs off. You give us those moments where 
That sticks with him. He remembers the dates. He feels the shame and the anger over those defeats, but he masters those defeats and learns from them. Instead of having his head twisted on backwards, he's looking ahead down that trail because he has to be sure-footed and all these metaphors from the wilderness that he's going to apply those. And I I liked watching those, how you built that up. So we see he's a promising go-getter. He really has a lot of that in him throughout the book. And I think that's just right, that that there are those moments and at Fort Necessity and Braddock's defeat that are these really kind of pivotal, transformational moments for him emotionally. And he's clearly affected by these things. We only know that because he refers to them in this way that is the writing of someone who really doesn't even want to address it directly, only that this is a, a very terrible date in my life, and I think of every actually July 3rd, which was the the date of the Fort Necessity defeat and surrender. And I've tried to do my best to put myself in his his shoes at those moments. And for instance, the Fort Necessity battle is one that just haunts me. And there are eyewitness accounts that which are in the book about how his men, Washington's men, were dying in these mud and blood-filled trenches in the rain. And Washington had really led them into this situation that did not have to have happened. He kind of got the French really angry, and they counterattacked with this Fort Necessity battle. And I just can't help but think that he was haunted by seeing his own men these guys, some of you probably knew growing up, some who, many who were certainly his own age. He's only in his early twenties. He knew their names, and he knows some of their names. Yeah. And seeing these guys in a kind of a swampy meadow field in the trenches, in the dying light of day, in the pouring rain, and these guys are lying there dead, and he knows that he had a big part in those guys lying there dead. And this is the first time he's been in that situation. He'll be in it many times again. But at that moment, I really have the sense the weight of that responsibility first came crushing down on him. And he didn't learn to carry it right away. But there are those moments where you really have a visceral sense that he has to deal with something very powerful and emotional. And that's part of the reason people are likening it to a novel because that's what you have to have. You have to bring that darling, as they say, kill your darlings, right? Well, you're not killing Washington here, and this is the real history. It's not a novel. But still, he's so low in those moments. And then you start rooting for him to get up. And even though you know the story, you're you're still wondering how he's going to come back from that. Where is he going to dig inside to find a way out of that? And also, he's not doing it alone. And... There are not people who really want to help him up. He doesn't have a father that's going to help him, and which is key here in this time in the aristocracy. The Fairfax family, he's close to them. They're going to give him some help. But he has to find somebody that's going to help him and also avoid other men pushing him aside. And His own age, I mean, Piers pushing him aside. Everyone wants the same plum assignments. That made me think of him later in his life because he doesn't have children of his own partially. He's very open to mentoring young men such as Alexander Hamilton, the Marquis de Lafayette. He accepts those men and he helps them and he gives them a chance. He's willing to give Hamilton a chance when he also, he has an even lower upbringing, right, than Washington himself did. He's born out of wedlock. He's he's from the West Indies. He's smart. And that's his key thing. He's tough in battle. He holds the line in New York, teaches himself and 
in New Brunswick there. He covers Washington's defeat as a Rutgers graduate. I, I have to get in that famous moment at, at New Brunswick. <laughs> but that's one of the things about him. And I wondered if you got insight from this. Did he, in his later life, you could go two ways. He could have said, well, with no one helped me, so I'm not going to help any of these young whippersnappers. What was it about him that made him go the other way and say, you know, I'm going to be the guy to this young Hamilton, this young Lafayette, these other young men that I didn't have. And if they're successful, I'm going to make it a meritocracy. It doesn't matter who your father was, what your lineage was. You could have a string of failures behind you like I do in the Washington clan that never made it. But I'm going to give you a shot. What do you think he learned over the course of young Washington in your book here that made him willing to mentor? He learned a number of things and, again, powerful lessons. And one of the bitterest lessons that resonated throughout his life was that he was not admitted to the British aristocracy, the British military aristocracy. He very, very much wanted to be an officer in the British Royal Army. And he was instead, from the very beginning, when Governor British Virginia Governor Dinwiddie appointed him as a as a young officer in the Virginia colonial military, Washington was always a colonial officer. He was never admitted to the British Royal Army as a, as a commissioned officer. And he tried and he tried and he tried, and he was turned down every time. And so he personally suffered a great deal of the consequences of being on the losing end of an aristocracy and not being recognized for his merit, for not existing in a meritocracy. So I think that lesson stayed with him all his life um, and very clearly. And, you know, he had a good deal of bitterness about it. And likewise, he actually did, even though his father had died when he was young and his older half-brother Lawrence died when Lawrence was in his 20s and George really admired his older half-brother Lawrence, but George was still a teenager when Lawrence died. So even though he lost those two really kind of key father mentoring figures, he was picked up by a few others along the way, including some British to a certain degree, and one of them being General Braddock in a great military assault that General Braddock leading the British Royal Army and the, the Redcoats chopping a forest road through the wilderness for 120 some miles to get to the British or get to the French fort deep in the wilderness. And even though that was a British operation by and large and General British General Braddock was was leading it, Washington was admitted. He was almost a civilian. They called him Mr. Washington huh. as an aide de camp to General Braddock. So Washington got to hang out with, you know, these very polished, young, educated British Royal Army officers and with General Braddock himself in their dining tent. And, you know, one of the things that just amazes me is that General Braddock served food on on silver serving platters, (laughs) which he lost to the Indians when he got ambushed. But Washington was living in that milieu, and he received a certain amount of mentoring or at least example from Braddock and from Braddock's other officers. So he did get some of that. But he was, as you say, he was very aware of helping young men out in his later life and giving them a chance and and basing that chance on merit, as in the case of Hamilton. Enjoying my conversation with Peter Stark, who brings us Young Washington, How Wilderness and War Forged America's Founding Father. 
You can find our guest at peterstarkauthor.com, at Stark Adventure on Twitter, and at Peter Stark underscore adventure underscore historian on Instagram. If you're in Midtown Manhattan on July 31st, 2019, at 7 p.m., Peter will appear as part of the New York Historical Society's nonfiction at the Bryant Park Reading Room Summer Series. You can enjoy some great history in one of the city's really beautiful parks. A lot of history there, too, used to be Croton Reservoir. In fact, I can recommend Croton Tavern right across from Bryant Park, down the street a tiny bit. Nice, big, beautiful mural of that Gilded Age Reservoir there. And, of course, you had the Crystal Palace there. Now you have the New York Public Library on one side of the park. So really a great open space. I've seen movies there myself. Real sign of the city's rebirth in the 90s when it was called Needle Park. That's history itself now that's all forgotten beautiful now you can find the reading room it's located on the 42nd street side of the park between 5th and 6th avenues so i'm looking forward to that i think i'm going to pop down there be, be nice to maybe ask you to sign my book and nag you for that in person i'd be delighted if you did <laughs> well thanks so much i wanted to ask you to tease the event a little what can listeners expect to hear at the bryant park reading room on july 31st well, I think they'll hear some a number of unexpected things, and part of it is what we're discussing here is this really unknown or largely unknown side of George Washington as a struggling, ambitious, and you know kind of a mess as a young man, yeah. and yet one who grew into be a great leader. And so I'm going to tell some stories about all that and about just how he did struggle and how he came within an inch of dying a number of times. Mm falling into icy rivers and through ambushes and various other things. And then I'll trace the arc of his life. And I'll, I think I might address some other historical things there at Bryant Park, because, you you know, as you say, it's a very historic spot. And the Astor Library was one of the original libraries in New York. And the, the New York Public Library on 42nd Street is, in a way, the descendant of the original Astor Library. In fact, it's a lot of it was uh, paid for, I think, renovations by Brooke Astor. Previous book to uh, Young Washington was a book I wrote called Astoria. And it's about John Jacob Astor as a young German immigrant who came to New York in the 1780s, right after the Revolutionary War, married a New York woman, became a real estate and fur baron, and with Thomas Jefferson's help, launched a cross-the-continent massive expedition in the footsteps of Lewis and Clark, and his mission was to found the first American colony and a global trade empire on the Northwest coast which was a very significant historic undertaking and it met with incredible disaster. And it's a really a gripping story, but I really like the idea that I'll be reading at the Astor library because the guy who built that place, who made the money, who built it, I know a lot about his life too. Yeah, cool. And he has a really unusual life. Yeah. When I first saw your previous book was named Astoria, I said, Peter Stark doesn't sound like a Greek name. And then I reminded myself, no, he's talking about the actual Astors, who Astoria Queens, where many Greeks come when they came from Greece, and there's still a big Greek-American community there today. They named it for the Astors, hoping to tempt them, which is pretty cool little way a city gets its name. That's how they named Astoria. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. It didn't quite work out. They never moved there. It didn't but. work out. Well, Astoria, <laughs> the book that I wrote, Astoria refers to Astoria, Oregon, which is a small 
settlement, the first American settlement on the West Coast at the mouth of the Columbia River, very close to where Lewis and Clark overwintered in uh, 1805, 1806. And from that Astoria, which came way before the Queen's Astoria, John Jacob Astor was trying to start, and he did succeed, a trans-Pacific, trans-global trade empire. And in fact, he, he was thinking, and Thomas Jefferson was thinking, it might be a whole separate country on the West Coast, an empire of liberty founded by John Jacob Astor. Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't quite turn out that way, but it's a very significant other Astoria out on the West Coast. Cool to think of two Astorias touching each ocean and stretching across the country, and it's something that to get back to young Washington, I knew that he was a surveyor and that's one way you get him out there in the wilderness, but pretty cool because the British are thinking, Hey, we own the whole continent all the way to the Pacific. And you could tell when you're reading the book, you want to ask them, well, how do you know where the Pacific is? And they say, well, shut up. Don't worry about it. Whatever it is, wherever you hit water, that's all ours. Okay. So no, no kidding. Then Washington blunders into it. And again, all these words like blunder and, and arrogant and angry and petulant, I, I feel like he's going to come and get me for saying that. I feel like I'm insulting him, but hey, it's what he was. And I think we look back and we all say that about ourselves. Gosh, I was so dumb that time when I did that thing when I was a young person and I I lost my temper over nothing. What was the point now that I I got a little older? And that's the thing. It is, as Goodreads calls young Washington, a new, brash, and unexpected view of the president we thought we knew. He is able to surprise us after all this time. And you're tackling a guy who is in everybody's wallet, and yet we don't really know him. Exactly. And and I think that's the fascination of him, is that we we think we know him. And really, we know only the merest surface of him, certainly in his early days. The only real image people have of him in any wide-scale sense is chopping down the cherry tree and telling his father, I can't tell a lie. <laughs> and the fact that he was a surveyor, those are really the two things that I think kind of stick in people's mind, but there's a the whole life that he had. I mean, he had a whole life. He lived an entire lifetime or several by the time he was 26 or 27. And at, at that point, he was about ready to quit, too, from the, the military. He said, I'm done with this. But um, he lived intensely and, as you say, made a lot of mistakes, made a lot of blunders, and managed to survive and managed to learn from them. I really stand in admiration of how he comes across as such a self-taught guy. That's one of the really outstanding features of this account of his early days is that he was just so attuned to how he was going to learn from things and use that knowledge also to further himself. I mean, that he was very much about furthering himself, especially in the beginning. And eventually, I think his his sense of, of leadership and sense of empathy grew to include, I mean, I know it did eventually, but even in these early years, started growing to include larger issues, larger matters, things besides himself, beyond himself and his own advancement. And he ended up really, and over the course of his life, really running with that, that, that sense of service to a much larger cause. It's sort of the reverse of what David Petruccia said about Theodore Roosevelt. I interviewed him about his book, TR's Last War. And he said, most biographers, by the time you get to the Great War, he's exhausted you because he's had this 
great childhood in New York City. He's been a police commissioner in New York City, the Rough Riders. He stormed San Juan Hill. He's so energetic, campaigning for McKinley. Then he gets vice presidential nomination. He's president, goes to the Amazon expedition. I'm, I'm, I'm getting tired just listing it. And he says, so by the time, by the time they get to the Great War, they're like, oh, good. Let's just write as David McCullough writes about John Adams. Well, I couldn't just say he, he loses the presidency, goes back to Braintree lived for another 20 years and nothing happened. So I had to find out exactly what happened when he wrote his Pulitzer Prize winning biography of John Adams. And it's the reverse of those two men in young Washington, where he did have this young life and it was a life that was full because it has to start when he's 11. They say a boy doesn't become a man until his father dies. And for young Washington, that moment happens at 11. And then he's got his mother hanging over him and, and pushing him around. And every young man chafes at that, right? You don't want anyone telling you what to do, much less your mom. You know, I'm picturing her yelling at him out there on the plantation to come in. It's time for dinner, George. Stop playing with your toys. Won't let him go to sea, which he wants to do. All of these things are so at odds with that superhuman tenacity during that winter at Valley Forge. We discussed that with Bob Drury and Tom Clavin when we talked about Valley Forge, their book together. He's a guy that doesn't ever give up. That's his brand, so to speak. That's what he does. He does not give up. He doesn't let you stop him. And yet, during these formative years when he is frustrated, when he does give up that dream of going to sea because his mom tells him so, he does give up. How many times does he threaten to leave the army or think about it? Well, it's, I spent quite some time trying to actually count them all up because there's so many and they occur through so many different papers and letters. But he quit or threatened to quit. I, I put it in my book. He, threat, he quit or threatened to quit during this period in his early 20s at least seven times. And I actually think it's over 10 at, at least. And very explicitly, well, you know, if people don't appreciate me, I'm going to quit. And, you know, it's just about that blunt. <laughs> And it happens over and over again that he feels that he's not being appreciated the way he should be. He's not being paid enough. He's not getting the rank he deserves. He complains about he's not, you know, getting the table, getting the, the right meals that a British Royal Army officer would, you know, the <laughs> meal allowance. I don't, I don't, my expense account's not big enough. <laughs> Petty things. Yeah. But when you're young and headstrong, those things seem to mean a lot. It's only later when you get the maturity, maybe when you do watch those men dying there face down in the mud where or face up in some of the cases you describe in young Washington, where you start to realize there's bigger things. There's there's service. There's you could serve yourself best and your career best by learning to be better. And that's when he hits the books and starts training himself. And I think of what happened in young Washington's case is that because he lost his father at such a young age and because his older brother, whom he really worshipped, also died when George was young, that he was kind of anchorless and that he didn't have that sort of sense of security of this is my place in the world the way I think many of us do. And I think I'm speaking about males here in particular, as I'm, I'm one of them and have a sense of it myself. But, you know, here's your place in the world, George, you know, that this is this is the context of of who you are, who we are. Well, he didn't have that. He lost all that at a young age. And so I think that is one of the real motivators, one of the real dynamics that makes him push so hard, that makes him so ambitious. He wants to make him uh, his name in the world. He wants to have a place. He wants to have a place that he knows is big and secure and important. 
and that he struggles, uh, you know, pushing that this whole time. And it's one of the reasons he's so thin skinned when he doesn't get the enough allowance for his his officer's table to feed, to serve food at his tent. And when he feels he doesn't, it's not being paid enough and he's not getting what a British royal officer would get. He takes it really seriously and personally that, you know, it's a, it's a real blow to, I think, his whole sense of being. And one of the, one of the points I've made that, especially when I, when I talk about this, is that when he finally did, you know, there's a, you know, there's a long, long, many stories here. But when he finally did the French and Indian War, moved on from his region, moved on from the Ohio wilderness, and he left the wilderness, and he left the military at age 26, age 27, and he married Martha right then, that I have such a sense that over the next 20 years, Martha, who was a very wealthy widow, and gave George a lot of status, a lot of money, a lot of land, a lot of slaves, and a lot of status. But Martha was really the influence who either explicitly or implicitly told George, you know, it's okay, George, you don't have to try so hard. You know, things are okay. It's like, you know, you can chill out. And I give a big credit to Martha for doing that. It is an important thing, and it's something that he doesn't get before. That's another thing we know about him. Well, okay, he married a wealthy widow, and we all sort of wink and nudge each other a little bit because on some level we all give in to that wanting to feel a little bit better. This guy, maybe I'm Mount Rushmore, but hey, at least I didn't write any letters to married women or I didn't marry a widow. But he makes such a great choice there, and it helps him become this great man. It helps him have someone to support him, not just the money. It's easy to say that she was really wealthy. As you put it in there, she had huge tracts of land, which made me think of Monty Python. I read that in Michael Palin's voice. But anyway, that's not (laughs) speaking of something from your youth. She's beautiful. She's rich. She's got huge tracks of land. (laughs) I know that's not what you meant about Martha, but, uh, you know, that would be more Dolly Madison's Milou. But anyway... This is the thing. He has to have somebody by his side, and it's great to see him have the right person. It's another lesson for young people. As you said there, young man, there's more to making a match than huge tracts of land. He finds somebody there who sees beyond the powdered wig, sees beyond this persona that he's making, and she grows to love him for it. And you're so glad by the time you get to that in young Washington, because maybe without somebody like that, it grows up to commit treason against the crown, and that your book is about this jerk who marries a terrible person who, who encourages all his worst impulses, and we don't have a country. Because at some point, this dedication and this push and this drive, it could have turned very negative in him. If he'd nurtured those bad qualities like tobacco on the farm, the tobacco plants, instead of pulling those bad qualities out as weeds and nurturing his good qualities— This would be a very different book, Young Washington. We start to see where he has that independent streak and where he does decide to turn against that British uniform, turn against the crown, and he's going to lead the cause for independence. That's a slow unfolding in his life, isn't it? Were you conscious of that as you followed his life, where at first he just dreams of being an aristocrat, welcomed into British society, and then by the end, he's somebody who's willing to take up arms for liberty. He finds something larger than himself, larger than those silver plates to fight for. And that's what happened, is that he underwent that transformational arc. And it, 
it started, you know, in these early years in his early 20s when he was in the wilderness and in the French and Indian War. And he did undergo those experiences, as we were, you know, saying about in the mud and the blood at Fort Necessity. And I think each one of those pushed him farther along this path of opening his vision to a larger world and to a larger cause. You can really see it unfold in those early years as he does face these crises like Fort Necessity or Braddock's defeat. But he doesn't make the transformation completely by the time he's 26 or 27, that he's still not the leader that he will one day become. He's still a, he still has his passions and his angers in 1758, just a few months before he actually leaves the service and goes to Mary Martha, leaves the wilderness, that he's given a huge dressing down by his commanding officer, General Forbes, on a, who's a British Royal Army officer, for indulging in very selfish and shameless behavior. Washington is being berated for this, for advocating that General Forbes take a certain road that goes through Virginia rather than the more convenient, better road that goes through Maryland and Pennsylvania. And so Washington is taken to task at, you know, this is age 26, 27, for being selfish by his commanding officer. And he still is learning at that age in his, you know, in his 20s. But when he does get out of the wilderness and he does marry Martha, I think that's where he really gets on a much steadier path. But it takes a long time, 15 years, more or less, between the time he gets out of the wilderness and the first opening shots of the Revolutionary War, a little more than that. And it's in that period where I think that his mindset starts turning more and more against the British, as, as happens with many of the American colonists as the 1760s go on. And it starts becoming a more of an independent sense of independence from the British crown. And that clearly builds through those years when he's with Martha and he's running his plantation and the various effects of the French and Indian War, the monetary effects, the economic effects are coming down on the American colonies that the British crown, the British Royal Army had to spend a lot of money fighting the French and Indian War, fighting against the French and Indians in North America. And when the war ended, the British crown wanted its money back. <laughs> and so that's when the British crown really started taxing yeah. the American colonists. And that's where, of course, a lot of the uproar started against British oppression right there. And in the, these early years of Washington to kind of feed right into that, too. You sum up young Washington by writing that in fits and starts leading back to those days you were just talking about in the Ohio and Pennsylvania wilderness, this tall 21-year-old who'd grow into the indispensable man and is very dispensable at that point. He's <laughs> just flinging him out there, right? The British don't really need him around. A lot of people, he's becoming a, an annoyance, but he does become a selfless leader, the one who is remembered as George Washington. I'm looking at the cover of Young Washington, which I didn't mention, and this painting of him as a young man, it shows why they call people artists, right? Because you have so much there in his face, him holding that musket and the way that he's standing even, the look on his face, smooth face, doesn't look like he has any scars there. The world has not <laughs> scarred him yet, although he, maybe at the time he did have some scars from those illnesses, right, but they right. never painted those back then. I'm thinking if I'm a, a young man, I'm I'm in my early 20s, 
mentioned Churchill again, 20 to 25. Ah, those are the years, he said, the years that make you who you are going to be. You don't want to waste a second when you're in them. And then when you get older than that, you reap the fruit of those. So I always have an eye to what young people can learn from history and from a figure like George Washington. What would you hope that maybe a fatherless young man, maybe a rudderless young man, maybe an angry young man, a man with all of these flaws that I I have here on a piece of paper here (laughs) that Washington has, ambitious, temperamental, vain, thin-skinned, petulant, awkward, demanding, stubborn, annoying, hasty, and passionate. (laughs) Sounds like you have some work to do, boy, right? If that's those are your problems, right? (laughs) What do you hope that a young person like that would take from young Washington as a lesson that would maybe serve a little like all those books Washington read, a little bit like that Rules of Civility, to help them make their way through the wilderness of life. I hope that's what young people take away from it, and older people too. I mean, I think we all, including myself, can learn plenty of lessons from this, from his example. And I think just that, that anger or or a sense of rudderlessness or whatever, thin-skinnedness, that he had the unique ability to channel those things. And for instance, channel his anger into a constructive cause. And he didn't learn how to do that right away. I mean, he floundered around for a long time, but eventually he learned how to do that. And so in a way, he was a master at taking his negative emotions and his negative traits and using them in a constructive way, in a way to his best advantage and to the best advantage of the people he was leading. And that's a really unusual and remarkable quality, and it's very visible in George Washington. Well, Peter Stark, you said there are many, many stories in the book, and I can certainly testify to that. I want to thank you for sticking with me through some of my questions where I was trying to jam everything in. As I said, I was trying to be a good puppy, not welcoming Washington home and jumping all over (laughs) when he got back to Mount Vernon. But I really was passionate about this book, how great it is to meet the man who is first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen as an adult. But here is nothing like that, who could easily have fallen as just a footnote in history, if that. A slaveholder who launched a revolution for liberty and democracy, somebody who does free his slaves upon Martha's death, but sums that that seems to be the only thing that, that people know about him. And here, I hope that people will learn that we shouldn't condescend to history or raise them up too high. Because he's a real-life Captain America. He's somebody before the super soldier serum, before he develops his powers, as, as you put it before. And there are countless monuments in his honor. He really did earn them. He wasn't perfect, but he was the perfect man for his time and place in history and the American Revolution. I really do hope people will pick up the book, be inspired by his origin story. And I look forward to seeing you and hearing you at Bryant Park on July 31st at 7 p.m. I hope people will check you out and want to join us there because maybe if we listen carefully, we'll hear those fox hunt calls because (laughs) that's one of Washington's defeats, right? Being driven right up Manhattan Island through that area back in the Revolution. And it looks dark does many times in young washington but gosh he does such a great job coming back always exactly he comes back always that's amazing and i really have enjoyed our talk dean and your knowledge and your passion about this and history in washington and i hope we have a chance to see each other on july 31st at bryant park i really hope we'll connect there too Again, the book is 
Young Washington, How Wilderness and War Forged America's Founding Father. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. By buying the book that way, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. In case you can't tell, I'm really grateful to Peter Stark for joining me today and for sharing with all of us the origin story of the American Revolution's heroic leader, forged out of a list of adolescent flaws that make him just as human as any one of us. Find our guest at peterstarkauthor.com, at Stark Adventure on Twitter, and at Peter Stark Adventure Historian on Instagram. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book, Young Washington, and the interview today on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram, or Facebook. That's it for this revolutionary installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review or to check out the written Q&As at historyauthor.com. Well, until our next trip into the past together, or I see you at Bryant Park, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost good night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. She's got huge tracks of land.